Well, uh, good morning again. If you don't recognize me, I'm Chris Holmes. I'm on staff here as the Stemler Scholar, as well as one of the pastors. Please come on in, come on in. Um, and this is the fifth week in our series, Journeys Moving Through the Bible. And as I think Jamie Butcher said the very first week, this study is sort of going parallel to the, the godly play curriculum that some of our children are experiencing. And so um, this is our fifth week, and this week we, we are t turning to the New Testament. Um, and uh, we have the opportunity to study the New Testament uh, a little bit in the next three weeks. And so this week, uh, the title is Journeying with Jesus to Bethlehem. And so I'm using that phrase, to Bethlehem, as sort of a shorthand reference to the, the, the narratives about Jesus' birth, um, leading up to and uh, uh, culminating in his birth. And then next week, we'll talk about that long journey to Jerusalem, uh, particularly as it appears in Luke's gospel, uh, but we'll also look to the other gospels. So just in case, uh, we've covered a lot of bases already, and so... Uh, to, let's see what happened. Oh, there it is. Um, to catch you all up uh, briefly, what we've done so far, we started the first week with just a sort of introduction to the series. What does it look like to think about journeying in the Bible as a people of faith on the move? And what does it, think, what does it look like to do that with the realities of global migration in the 21st century? Um, Week two, we, we talked about the Exodus, uh, Israel's uh, pilgrimage or, or wandering from slavery in Egypt to the very border of the promised land that had been promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. Then in week three, we talked about another form of journey in Israel's history, which was the exile, the process of losing their statehood, first in the north and then in the south, um, and experiencing being foreigners again, living in the land of another people. And then last week, we took a break and uh, didn't so much cover a, a, you know, a massive swath of history as we had with the, uh, the two previous weeks, but we focused on the, the wisdom literature um, and three types of wisdom literature that are found in the Old Testament and what they might offer us as uh, wisdom for the way. And on the screen, um, I've, I've highlighted Exodus and exile, because as we turn to the Gospel of Matthew this morning, one of the things that I'm going to call attention to is the degree to which Matthew tells the story of Jesus's birth in a way that echoes both the Exodus and the exile. So we're going to be looking for those big journeys, Israel's journeys, in the own journeys of Jesus's birth. So, Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to get ourselves to Bethlehem. Um, and I'm using language of getting there, but we're going to cover some history, some beginnings of the Gospels, and even a little geography. And again, just as a warning, I've said this in this class before, I can get lost in a small neighborhood. So spatial geography is not my forte. So I'm going, we're, going to, we're going to get through this material together. I'm going to do my best. Um, and then we're going to focus on Matthew, and by that, you know, by the last five or ten minutes, I'm sure you're all going to be asking this question, what does all of this have to do with me? <laughs> Tell me again why this matters. So we'll try to, try to evaluate that uh, at the end. So getting to Bethlehem, catching up with the New Testament's beginnings. So as you all know, I'm sure the, the New Testament starts with 
four narratives about the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? This is um, some, some review material. And one of the perspectives that you can find when you read the Bible canonically is the Old Testament ends in Malachi. That is the last book of the Old Testament, and it opens with the book of Matthew. And so when we're reading Malachi, if we were to go back to Malachi, we would realize that this is the last prophet in the biblical tradition, in Israel's tradition. This is the last person who receives a word from the Lord, right? And um, Malachi is sort of pointing beyond itself, beyond his own prophetic role to say, someone is going to come after me. And so in Malachi 4.5, Malachi says, Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And this is where we get the idea that Elijah, who, who uh, we learn earlier in the Old Testament didn't die, but was sort of sucked up into this cloud and disappeared. Um, there is this belief that, Malachi, that, that Elijah would come back and would prepare the people of Israel for the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is this ominous and big and multi-faceted um, reality in both the Bible and in early Jewish literature. It can be a good thing, right? This is when God is going to set things right with the nations, and Israel is finally going to be redeemed again, finally get its due. But the day of the Lord can also be a terrible day of the Lord, right? When, when God reckons out judgment. Um, and uh, sometimes this is depicted in uh, language that can be ominous. But so one of the things that happens in the Christian canon, and the Christian canon is different from the Jewish canon, is that we end with Malachi and we pick up with Matthew. And Matthew gives us this impression that we open with one who's preaching, like Elijah. This is John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes early in the life of Jesus, um, is preaching repentance, is saying the kingdom of God is at hand, maybe perhaps something like the day of the Lord. And so one of the things that you can get just by the arrangement of our canon is this impression that God stopped speaking for 400 years. Malachi, that's the last time God says anything, and then God shows up and starts speaking again in and through John the Baptist. Does that distinction make sense? 400 years of silence is one of the impressions uh, that our canon can suggest. And what I will often tell my students in class, um, and I'll tell you this morning, is that this perspective, although theologically um, we can think of some theological reasons why the canon is organized this way, it ignores a lot of important stuff that happens between Malachi and Matthew. And so in order for us to get to Bethlehem, we have to talk a little bit about this three to four hundred year gap. So what, um, re you'll remember that when we left the exile, we had just started the Persian period. That was, you know, sort of the, the exile and post-exilic literature was in the Persian period. And so when we think about what we've missed between the Persian period and the New Testament, we've missed a good bit of information. We've, we've, we've missed the start and end of the Hellenistic period. This is when Alexander the Great, um, the Macedonian, wants to create a Greek-speaking world and a Greek culture throughout the ancient Mediterranean world. He spreads the language of Greek. He introduces Greek city-states all across the ancient Near Eastern world. And he, he tries to combine 
local religious practices with existing Greek practices and saying, oh, you worship that God? That's pretty much Zeus, so you're cool. So he doesn't make them worship in a particular way, but he also reinterprets local religious traditions to say, hey, we're all the same. Everybody's the same. You call an elephant, I call it a rhinoceros, we're good, right? And so, so this period, between the, between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, this period, almost 300 years, has both started and ended by the time we get to the New Testament. Significant changes have happened. We have a short moment, a very short moment, in which there was independent rule in the land of Judea, in Palestine, under the Hasmoneans. It lasted less than 100 years. It was a tumultuous time for the people of Israel at this time, living in Palestine. And like I said, less than 100 years. Um, and it ended um, with uh, some significant damage to the city of Jerusalem again. Um, uh, so we, we had some independence and we lost our independence. Um, then we see that this is when we get the beginning of the Roman period. Uh, so Rome takes over the land that Alexander had sort of unified, and in many ways the Romans are happy to keep a lot of the administrative stuff going that Alexander had. They're not going to go and make a lot of changes. Perhaps the most significant change is they're going to start increasing the taxation so that they can do projects in Rome. So all of these colonies in the ancient Mediterranean world become a cash cow for projects or food for the Roman, uh, the capital in Rome. So we've missed the, the rise and fall of three periods in between Malachi and Matthew. But there's more, there's still more that we've missed. We've missed the fact that Palestine has continued to struggle with being dominated by a foreign power. Um, this happens particularly in Rome, uh, or with the Romans, that there's this resistance and there's some upstart movements and then there's some reaction on the part of the Romans. And so when we're getting to the time of Jesus, we need to know there's pressure about taxation, there's concerns about Roman rule in the region, um, and there are people, Jewish people, who are really concerned that there's going to be another uprising that's just going to cause the utter demise of this, this, this region. And so you've got people who are ready to go to war, you've got people who are doing anything to keep the peace, and you've got Rome and the emperor who you know, is claiming absolute rule over this region and the rest of the ancient Mediterranean world. In addition, we focused, I focused up to this point, a lot of attention on Palestine. But one of the things that we miss in this Malachi to Matthew period is that Jews continued to live in diaspora, which is just a fancy word for not in their home. So the Jewish communities in Egypt or in, or in um, Antioch or throughout the ancient Mediterranean world are flourishing. They're learning how to be Jewish in a non-Jewish world. And they're developing particular practices and ways of being in the world that maintain their Jewish identity and yet sort of are navigating the realities of worshiping in a, or living in a Roman period. We see in, in Judea at this point that the second temple that was rebuilt after exile is getting rebuilt again. It's getting tinkered with under Herod. Um, and there's, there's a significant building project that is going with that uh, that will put some pressure um, on the Jewish people uh, to, to sort of build it. And that building project was expensive. 
we see in addition to the temple, the central religious significance of the temple, are uh, in this period, this is when synagogues begin to uh, take form and, 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 and show up. So we've got, we've got a separate and parallel religious institution to the temple. You don't offer sacrifices in the, in the synagogue, right? But you do read and interpret scripture and perform prayers and have community. And in a lot of Jewish synagogues of this time, you also handle business. You also make sure people in the community are being taken care of. You, you sort of have a sort of a, a tribal or a local sort of governing experience. So synagogue take root both in the diaspora and in the in the in, the, in Palestine in the in the land of Jesus so we've got this this religious institution that is extremely significant for early Christianity and early Judaism that did not exist in the Persian period most likely that has come to, to pass in this period between Malachi and Matthew and then of course Greek Hebrew and Aramaic oh my we have uh, the reality the, of multilingual communities. Um, it's very likely that at this point only the, the sort of educated spoke Hebrew anymore. So uh, scripture continued to be transmitted in Hebrew, but Hebrew was sort of falling out of fashion. Aramaic had become, since the Persian period, the chosen language for the Jews. And so they were writing in Aramaic. They were most likely speaking in Aramaic. Um, they were writing commentaries on the Old Testament in Aramaic. Um, and so Aramaic was an important language, probably more of a common language among, among Jews of this period. But because of what Alexander the Great had done, many would also have been speaking Greek because Greek would have been the, the dominant language throughout. So if you did anything, with regard to the economy or politics, you had to know Greek, at least some rudimentary Greek. And so we, we have this reality that even in a place like Nazareth, where, where we, we learn Jesus spent some of his childhood, um, there's, there's evidence that, that there was a significant Greek presence there. Um, including a, a Greek theater, perhaps a Greek gymnasium. And so we, we begin to see that even in Palestine, people were speaking Hebrew, but they were all, or speaking Aramaic, but they were also engaged in a Greek milieu, in a Greek speaking world and worldview. So when we, when we think about this gap in our, in our Bible, it's only, it's only like a couple pages in my Bible. Um, it's a big, significant gap. Um, in, in, the, in the history and culture of the ancient world. And so, so to get to Bethlehem, we had to do some work. So I want us to think now with this in mind, with the gospel beginnings. And so I want you to find a partner and answer this question. What do you remember about how the gospels each begin? Remember, I said there's four gospels. And if you can't remember, if you can't distinguish the four Gospels, that's fine. But let's get some, get some, um, some memories up about how each Gospel begins or how the Gospels begin. So find a friend and I'll give you probably only two minutes to talk about it. <laughs> okay. So what, what do we remember... What do we remember about gospel beginnings? Okay, they're all different. Thank you. You get an A for class today. Everybody gets an A once we recognize 
all four Gospels start in a different manner. Great. What else? There's a, okay, good. One of them starts with a genealogy. And what, a genealogy was just traces like so-and-so begat so-and-so and begat that part of the Bible you just want to skip over. Matthew decided, let's start there. This, this is really important. So Matthew opens with a genealogy. Matthew must have been old. <laughs> yeah. ah, I, I think I understand. Yes. Yeah. So John the Baptist appears in all four as a as a as a somebody somebody who goes in front of Jesus or some sort of relationship with Jesus although in all four gospels they sort of sort out that relationship with Jesus in a, in differently um, correct yes so so for a gospel that is purportedly about the life of Jesus it's interesting that Mark starts with John the Baptist John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness Prepare for the day of the Lord, for, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Yes, maybe a couple of other things. Nobody wants to, yeah. John was the word. The word was the word. Great, okay, good. So we're not going to talk a lot about the Gospel of John today. I, uh, we can talk about why I decided that later. Um, but the Gospel of John, um, again, starts somewhat oddly with, with not talking about Jesus but talking about the word, or in Greek, the logos, which uh, has this uh, cultural significance that can be translated in a lot of ways, but it's not until verse 14 or verse 12 that we say, oh, and this was this guy named Jesus, right? But for the first 10 verses, you're like, I thought I was reading about Jesus, but he just keeps on talking about the word. What's this word thing, okay? So the gospels open, they begin in different ways. So here is how all three of the, the, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, begin. And we can see what we've already talked about. Matthew begins with a genealogy. Mark begins uh, with, with what is sort of known as a, a prologue, where we say the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how Mark 1.1 starts. And Luke uh, actually starts with a sort of what... what has been identified as a literary preface where, where Luke or whoever wrote Luke is saying, here, this is what I'm doing for four verses, says to the person who most likely paid for him to write this book, uh, Theophilus, his patron, this is my intention. Let me tell you what I'm doing. And then starts the narrative about Jesus's life. So these gospels begin in very unique and different ways. And we can add to that, in addition to the first verse, um, the Gospel of Matthew, sort of just the first couple chapters, is going to have a genealogy. It's going to include some information about the infancy of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, including his flight to Egypt, which we're going to talk about in more depth in just a few minutes. Um, but it doesn't mention his childhood. Um, it doesn't tell us how old Jesus is when he flees to go to Egypt with his family, but it's, it's likely that he was young, a, a young child, less than two. In the Gospel of Mark, we have John the Baptist, first and foremost. We have no mention of his infancy or childhood. Jesus shows up as a, as a grown man in the wilderness to get baptized by Mark. And then Luke uh, starts with this prologue that I mentioned. It has two infancy accounts, you'll re remember. First of John the Baptist and then of Jesus. And they are sort of told in a parallel fashion to each other. 
And then we get just a bit of Jesus's childhood, right, when he's presented in the temple um, uh, as an infant and then again as a 12-year-old when he goes to Jerusalem. And so um, this, is, this is how our Gospels begin. Um, this is how we get to Bethlehem uh, with these Gospel beginnings. I also want to talk about the beginnings of the Gospel in one other way, which is the beginnings of the Gospels as narratives. So when, when Mark to, to opens the, the book, the beginning of the good news, or the gospel, that's the same Greek word for good news is gospel. So when you say gospel, you're saying good news. When you say good news, you're saying gospel. So next time you get a call from the doctor, you can just say gospel instead of good news. <laughs> so one of the transitions that happens within the first 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus is that the gospel moves from being primarily a message, primarily an oral announcement of God's victory, maybe, or God's salvation, or God's purposes. So we see that in the prophets of old, Israel's Old Testament prophets. We also see it in Paul, and it transitions from being a message to being a writing, to being a narrative. And most likely, um, Mark is our first gospel. Scholars suggest that the Gospel of Mark was written first. This is probably a review for most of you. Um, and then Matthew and Luke were written after Mark, and they most likely used Mark as a source. They, they, for the most part, they follow the timeline and the narrative structure provided by Mark, and really they just add to it. They add a beginning, they add an ending, and they add a little material in the middle. And so, um, so we have this transition from a spoken message to a written narrative about the life of Jesus. And when we think about the Gospels, again, we, it, we're, I think, encouraged, at least I encourage us to think about them as authors. They, they are intentional authors who are using traditions that have been handed down to them, either in written form or in oral form, and they are being selective and intentional about how they tell the story of Jesus. They want to tell the story of Jesus in a particular way. So as we turn to Matthew's Gospel in a few minutes, I'm going to encourage us to think about this with this idea of creativity, of shaping traditions in a particular way so that they're experienced in a particular way. So when we get to the New Testament writings and we think about journeys in the, the beginnings of Matthew and Luke, we could actually talk about a lot of journeys. In Matthew, there are at least three journeys that we could talk about. We could talk about the Magi coming from the, e from the east. We could think about Jesus and his family going to Egypt. And we could think about them returning from Egypt back into uh, the land of Israel. We look at Luke, there's even more journeys that we could have considered. That's why I went with Matthew. I wanted us to, you know, have a simpler um, uh, survey this morning. But we have uh, Zachariah going to the temple. We have Mary visiting Elizabeth. We have Mary and Joseph going to Bethlehem for the census. We have the visit of the shepherds. We have Jesus going to Jerusalem as a baby, then the return to Nazareth, and then back to Jerusalem as a 12-year-old. So lots of movement and journeys, which, is, which made me sort of have to pause and do a bit of geography review. Now, remember what I said. Not, this is not my specialty. I don't know geography. I grew up in Colorado. The only way I knew what was north was because the mountains were always to my left. Right? That's how I knew geography. So, um, 
This is a map of, of Israel during the time of Jesus, and I'm going to zoom in on two areas. The first is the southern region. Let's see if this pointer works. Yes. So right here is Jerusalem, and just south is Bethlehem, and above it is Samaria, right? Samaria, that important place that we learn about in the Gospels. And so we're talking about uh, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, and in addition, we're talking about the northern region, which is called the Galilee, north of Samaria, and Samaria is north of Judea, and Nazareth in particular. So that's, that's the sort of the focus. We're going to talk about those three locations, Nazareth, Bethlehem, and Jerusalem. So I've covered a lot of ground up to this point, and it seems an appropriate time for us to say what? What are some questions? One, one question um, that I heard during the discussion that I'll answer was uh, just a clarifying, is the Christian canon, with it ending in Malachi and starting in Matthew, does that differ from the Jewish canon? And the answer is it is different. The Jewish canon ends with the Chronicles. So the Jewish canon has the Pentateuch first, the Torah, then the Nevi'im, the prophets, and then uh, the Ketuvim, the writings. And so it ends with the writings. So the Christian canon ending in Malachi and starting in Matthew is a theological arrangement of this literature because they want us to say, oh, Malachi stopped, God stopped speaking to Malachi, and look, John the Baptist receives a word from the Lord, right? And so it, it, it makes a good, tight biblical history. It just obscures some of the realities. But are there other questions about anything that I've covered? Yeah. Contemporary Palestine? Or, so, yeah, so the, the problem is somewhat of, of language. So this whole region, as I understood, would be sort of referred broadly as Palestine, right? In the, at least in the scholarly literature, they would refer to this as Palestine. And, or to, well, as a, as a part of the Mediterranean, and then there would be these different districts or regions within Palestine that would, that would depending on the time in history, would have independent rulers or governors um, uh, ruling over. So there might be um, a, a governor in Judea, but also a, another sort of ruling official in Galilee. Um, so um, again, and this is, this is my understanding that this would all be referred to as Palestine generally, and we would then talk about the, the different regions. Yes? So, uh, you halfway answered the question. So, King Herod yes. uh, oversaw what territory that Yeah, so Herod would be responsible uh, for Judea and Jerusalem at the time. I'm going to say I'm not sure. And I'm just going to be okay with that this morning. Yes? How literate were the people in Palestine? They spoke multiple languages, but okay, so now you've got sort of text kind of circulating and Paul's letters, but how literate were they? Did they have to depend on Yeah, that's great. Yes, there were shell reading stations along the highways. No. Um, yeah, so literacy in the ancient world was really low, 15 to 10% uh, in the ancient Mediterranean world as a whole. 
Um, but a lot of work has been done in scholarship to say, well, that doesn't quite tell the whole picture because um, even people who couldn't read themselves were often experiencing text being read. And this is true of, of Greeks as well as uh, of Jews living in this time period. So that um, even though they couldn't read it themselves, we value private reading in our modern culture. And that is actually a very recent invention in the history of the world, that, that we would all be able to take out our pocket Bibles and go and have a daily devotional with Jesus, right? That is a very recent phenomenon. Um, uh, and so most uh, of the world's encounter with reading or reading cultures has been oral. So there was, there was a trained reader, um, because reading ancient manuscripts um, was also difficult. The letters are not separated in most of them. There's, sometimes there's no vowel points. So you had to be a professional reader um, in some cases. And so they were then read out loud and discussed in a community. So in many ways, um, Paul's letters, um, the, the sort of the hypothesis that I think most telling is that usually the person who was sent with the letter from Paul to a community was also its reader. And so something like Romans um, mentions Phoebe in chapter 16, verse 2. Um, Phoebe may very well have been the first reader of Romans and the first interpreter of Romans to this congregation because she most likely was the one who brought the letter and read it. Um, uh, the only exception to that might be that Tertius, who at the end of chapter 16 we learn is the actual scribe who wrote it for Paul. Um, so maybe Tertius read it or wrote it. Um, but yeah, there would, there, would, there would be this gap between a, a written text and the experience of that written text, but it would primarily be oral. Oh, this is such a good question. So the question is, what's the possibility that Jesus could read? And a lot, a lot of how we would go about answering this question um, has to do with what we know about Jewish educational practices. And so um, there's, there's probably uh, a, a good chance that he at least knew some of the, the Torah study from growing up uh, in, in the synagogue. Um, he, you know, if, if we think that Jesus came from a, from a, a, a ma family of manual labor, woodworkers, um, uh, it's unlikely that he would have had the highest level of literate education, um, although there's no way for us to know for certain. Um, so in the Gospel of Luke, one of the things that's clear that we get from the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is able to read, according to the, to the evangelist, from Isaiah. And in his inaugural sermon, he reads from the prophet Isaiah. He finds the place in the scroll, and he reads. Now, from a critical perspective, one of the problems is, is the text that he reads is actually part of Isaiah 61 and part of Isaiah, I think, 40, which he couldn't, in one sitting, sort of scroll between. So even there, it's possible that he knew this orally instead of from a written tradition. Um, and I'll just say, in passing uh, to this question, one of my favorite um, non-canonical gospel moments is in the infancy gospel of Thomas, where the rabbi is trying to teach Jesus how to read. And Jesus says something to the effect like, how are you going to teach the creator of the alphabet how to read? But he submits himself to all human authority and he learns. It's just fascinating. These, these infancy gospels are, they are so fascinating. Um, uh, and, and, and fun to, fun to read, but, but that, that's the basic question. Would, would the creator of language need to learn how to read? This is the sort of stuff that second century Christians were wondering about.
Yes. Yeah. 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 So, um, in terms of the authorship of the Gospels, uh, technically all of our Gospels are anonymous, which means in no none of them do they say, "Hey, I'm Matthew. My mom was Sheila. You know, I grew up." And you know, they they never make this claim. Um, and the according to the Gospel according to Mar Mark or Matthew, that that according to was added in the sec second century to our manuscripts. So, um, technically, the Gospels don't ever claim authorship. The, the, the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John, um, identifies the author with the beloved disciple, but doesn't say the beloved disciple is John, that guy who's got a big mouth and who hung out of the, you know, the ship, right? Like, it doesn't give us that detail. So, in order for us to get details about the authorship, we have to cite, we have to go to early church tradition. Um, and the person that is most often cited as the earliest sort of authority on the authorship of the Gospels is a bishop by the name of Papias, who was writing in the early second century. And Papias is the one who says, Mark was this guy, was a traveling companion of Paul. Matthew was a tax collector. He was one of the original disciples. Um, Luke is the beloved physician, also a traveling companion of Paul, and John, John's the disciple of Jesus, the, you know, the beloved disciple. So it's, it's with Papias in the second century that we first get the identification of the four Gospels with four authors. Um, up until that point, um, we, do, we don't know, right? There's, it depends on how skeptical you want to be or not, right? Some people want to say, that's all created by Papias, let's just call them anonymous. Others are going to say, well, Papias is probably has acquired and received tradition that's much older than him, and therefore it's, it's basically um, reliable. But, but so this is where we get the, the balance between what the texts actually say and what later tradition says about them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so if I, yeah, that's right. They, so if I want to say that they were written intentionally, um, that means that they weren't sort of written in committee, you said, which means there, there is a, in my mind, there is a flesh and blood author behind the tradition, um, or behind each gospel. Uh, although, it, although it is possible, I mean, there's a, there's a whole hypothesis that Matthew was originated in a school setting. Um, and so then there might have been multiple, multiple authors involved, multiple at least writers involved. Um, but yes, um, I, I am of the persuasion that these Gospels are told purposefully. Um, and because of that, they probably originate with a flesh and blood author, um, or perhaps multiple if there have been later edits or editions. Yes. Half of you are like sitting on the edge of your chair and half of you are looking blank stare, like, like blank stared, which means I'm just doing, I'm just hitting home runs today. So um, let me get to uh, uh, this question that, that has bothered me all week. It probably has not bothered you all week, but um, it's the question of whether or not it's a journey to Bethlehem or from Bethlehem. So um, this is how the Gospel of Matthew talks about Bethlehem. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, so he was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, and we know how that story goes. We'll talk a little bit more about it. And then in chapter 2, verses 22 through 23, and after being warned in a dream, Joseph went away to the district of Galilee. 
There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what might be spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, he will be called a Nazarene. So the idea that we get from Matthew is that Jesus was born in, in Bethlehem, grew up in Bethlehem, uh, or at least initially, and then fled to Egypt, went home to Nazareth, but didn't go to Bethlehem right didn't return to his hometown of bethlehem which suggests that nazareth was not his hometown it was sort of an adopted hometown out of fear of what was going to happen but when we open luke's gospel uh, we get a different impression so this is from luke 2 1 3 through 4. in those days we know this a decree went out from the emperor augustus that all of the world should be registered all went to their own towns to be registered Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. And then in 239, at the end of the infancy events, when they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. So Luke suggests that Jesus was from Nazareth. And it was only sort of by extension that they went to Bethlehem. So their journey to Bethlehem was because they had to register for the census there. Um, but that they really grew up in Nazareth. So again, like I said, this has been bothering me all week. It probably has not bothered you all week. So um, Matthew suggests that Bethlehem is the home of Jesus. And Nazareth is later. Luke suggests that Nazareth is, Nazareth is home. And Bethlehem is simply a visit. So this, this leads me to ask a question, what's the deal with Bethlehem and Nazareth, right? These are the sorts of questions that I ask in my, in my office. I hope that they're even close to the kind of questions you would ask, but you only have to deal with me for another 15 minutes. So what's the deal with Bethlehem? Let's start with Bethlehem, this journey to Bethlehem. So this is what Matthew says about Bethlehem, why Bethlehem is significant. So the, the Magi come to Jerusalem, and they call together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and Herod, Herod now asks of, about them, where is the Messiah to be born? Where is the Messiah going to be born? And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. So as is the case often with early Christian citation of scripture, they do it in a blended sort of way. So this is all said to fulfill prophecy that actually comes a little bit from Micah and a little bit from 2 Samuel. So what's the deal with Bethlehem? The deal with Bethlehem is that it's associated with David um, and the birth of David. So what else do we want to know about Bethlehem? Bethlehem is a Judean village. So remember that Judea, Judah is the southern part of Palestine. Um, it's about five to six miles south or southwest of Jerusalem. I'm trusting people who know geography here. Um, and it has this great connection to David. So in 1 Samuel 16, 1, this is when David is selected to be the king in place of Saul. Um, and Samuel is sent to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Another word you can spread at fellowship hour. Did you know that Jesse was a Bethlehemite? I didn't either. And I can't say it. Um, so we, we learn that from 1 Samuel 16 that one of Jesse's sons, and Jesse is from Bethlehem, is going to be the next king of Israel. And of course that's David. Uh, he, you know, is, is the one who's ignored and he's 
he fights the lion or the, the giant, whatever. We all know the history. Um, David then becomes the king of Israel and is in many ways the archetype for all kings of Israel and is the archetype for the Messiah. So the expectation among early Jews, many early Jews, not all early Jews, was that, that the Messiah, the promised Messiah, would be of Davidic origin. He would come somehow from David. And so this quotation from Micah 5.2 is this idea that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem, that the Messiah will come from the same land as David. And so it seems like Matthew is really intentional in saying that that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. This proves that Jesus was of Davidic line. He was of Davidic lineage. This raises the vexing question um, of what were the Jewish expectations at this time period? Did, did Jews, non-Christian Jews, expect that Bethlehem was going to be the place where the Messiah would come or come from? And the answer is, it's complicated, right? That's the answer that anybody's going to tell you. Um, it seems, though, that early Christians really capitalized on this connection in a way that other Jews did not. So if we think about other Jews, non-Christian Jews writing at the time, they didn't make as strong a connection with Bethlehem as early Christians did. And so this has caused interpreters to ask the question, why would this be? And some would say, well, it must be that Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem. And that's why Christians sort of grappled onto these prophecies. And they, they went back and they reread the Old Testament to find the significance of Bethlehem. The, pro the only problem with that um, is that only Luke and Matthew mention Bethlehem in connection with Jesus. And they do so, as we've already seen, in kind of different ways. Um, and so we're left with uh, the impression that uh, that Matthew, for whatever reason, seems to be making this connection between Jesus and Bethlehem in order to pro portray Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God. And that seems to be what was going on. And we know from other issues or other traditions that Nazareth was a, a stumbling block for, for, for people in accepting Jesus. That if Jesus was from Nazareth, why? The, surely the Messiah is not going to come from Nazareth. And so it's possible that Matthew is written in response to this sort of question about how could um, Jesus be the Messiah if he wasn't from Bethlehem, or probably more directly, if he grew up in Nazareth, that place. You know, no, nothing good comes from Nazareth. So, and, and that gets us to what's the deal with Nazareth, Nazareth right? Nazareth is in the Galilee region, where I said it's approximately a five-day journey from Jerusalem. It's about 65 miles as the crow would fly, um, but in, in those days it would be about a five-day journey. So it's not close. It's not CVS down the street. Um, uh, but uh, as we read in the Gospels, Jesus um, frequents uh, the Galilee region. That's where most of his ministry is, but he comes down into Jerusalem occasionally. In addition, uh, we learn from uh, recent archaeology that uh, Galilee is actually a satellite village of Sepphoris. Sepphoris was a large Greek urban um, center. Um, it was founded and built during Jesus' time period, which lends credence to this idea that he was a carpenter's son. There was also a lot of work being done in Sepphoris at the time. Um, and so this has some implications once we connect Galilee or Nazareth with Sepphoris. 
for thinking about what kind of person was Jesus. Maybe he did grow up in a manual labor household. Um, it may have something to say about the language that he spoke. If Sepphoris is a primarily Greek-speaking region, then we have good reason to think that Jesus probably spoke Greek as well as Aramaic and maybe Hebrew. Um, and what else uh, about this? I, as I sort of mentioned before, we have these negative views of, uh, of Nazareth. And we, we learn about these in particular from the Gospel of John. Um, Nathaniel very early makes this famous saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, and Philip says, well, come and see. It doesn't answer the question. I'll let you answer that, apparently. Um, and then in chapter 7, uh, when people are beginning to have questions about Jesus, some say this is the Messiah. But some ask, surely the Messiah does not come from Galilee, does he? he? Has not scripture said that the Messiah is descended from David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? They replied, surely you are, you are not also from Galilee, are, are you? Search and you will see that no prophet is to arise from Galilee. So here we see in the Gospel of John this idea, both the connection to, to Bethlehem, but also this idea that Jesus is coming from Nazareth was problematic, at least to some people. Um, it wasn't expected that, that the, the Messiah would come from Nazareth, either from Bethlehem or perhaps from Jerusalem. Okay, you're all, you're all tracking with me. Um, and so I think uh, it's, it's very likely that Jesus was brought up in Nazareth, but it may also have been where he was born. Um, and, and our gospel traditions, like Luke in particular, suggest that, um, that, that that might have been the case, um, and that it's only uh, this connection with David and Bethlehem that, that gets Jesus to Bethlehem, is to make this, this connection. Yeah, oh, is there a question? No, no, okay, okay, I thought I heard a question. All right, so I want to talk about two small journeys in the Gospel of Matthew in the last few minutes of our time. And the first is the arrival of the Magi, a famous Christmas story in August. Um, but we're, we're going to talk about it. And then the flight to Egypt, just briefly. And so um, Dora is going to help us as we explore together. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put some verses on the board, um, and I'm going to read them. And I'm going to have a few things to say about parts of those. But I would invite any sort of questions, um, reflections. And as I read, I, I would like for you to think about what, it, what surprises you, what stands out to you, what strikes you, and what do we learn about journeys. And so I'll point some things out, and maybe you'll share some observations, and we'll see how far we can get in this journey in Matthew's beginning. So this is how the story of the Magi goes. It's in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So wise men in Greek is Magi. So that's why we get the, the language of Magi. Um, most likely they were, they were members of the priestly caste of the Medes and the Persians. Later, they were viewed as possessing all sorts of special knowledge, and some of them were viewed as positive, and others were viewed as negative. So a, a magi might be perceived as like a wise person, but also a sorcerer, right? A, a, an astrologer, but also a magician. And, and so they had sort of an ambivalent reputation in the ancient world. They were known for being able to read and interpret the signs of the times and predict the rise of kings. 
And so what one, of the, one of the things that interpreters of Matthew's gospel will point to is that the Magi are playing a very sort of stereotypical role in this story of predicting the king. And so that's their role. They're going to come and they're going to predict the king as they did in other narratives with other kings. So, and they're from the east, which probably is either Arabia, Babylonia, or Persia. So they, this, they're traveling and they ask, where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? They know the king of the Jews has been born. For we observed his star at its rising, and we have come to pay him homage. All right, we see they know a star, the astrology. Also, the star, according to Numbers 22 or 24, is connected with the Messiah. So that might also be in the water. So when King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all of Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So let's just pause here. Why would Herod be distraught, do you think? Competition. Competition. A new king? But I'm king. Right? And all of Jerusalem with him. Why would all Jerusalem be with him? Well, with, with kings and leaders come, comes often a cleaning of the house. You might need new, new officials. And what, 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 what happens in this, this beginning of Matthew's gospel is it seems like the king and all of the Jerusalem establishment are sort of lumped in together as being um, uh, um, not exactly excited about the birth of the Messiah, if not actively resisting it, as we'll see. So verse 5, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, right, we read this already, um, uh, the prophecy about Bethlehem in verse 7. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had, when they had, heard, the word so that, or, or when they had heard the word of the king, they set out. And there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left to their own country by another road. All right, so we, we get the Magi arriving at Jesus. What is, what is not in this story that you may see in the Christmas pageant every year? Huh? Timing? There's no stable? No shepherds? There's no mention of three. Good, you guys are just ready to deconstruct that, uh, the, the children. Where does the house come from? It's not in here. Uh, the, 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 the inn comes from the Gospel of Luke's tradition, um, uh, perhaps. Um, and there's also tradition that, Jesus, that Mary gave birth in a, in a cave. We learn about that from uh, uh, another second century Gospel text. All right, so the, this is the story. They get there, um, and these, these foreigners represent the best wisdom from the Gentile world. 
And they also have this sort of awareness of Jesus and what his significance is. And so they, they knelt down, they pay him homage. This is the same Greek word for worship. So there's debate about if this is a, a sign of deference or if it's a sign of devotion. And they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There's, there's many ways for us to perhaps think about this. Um, one very early tradition is that the gold represents the kingly role of Jesus, the frankincense, which was used in worship, represents him as God, and that the myrrh represents preparation for his body for death. Um, uh, that's early, and it's probably, it's probably um, there, there's, that, that's one interpretation, let's put it that way. Um, but what's interesting is that these are Gentiles, they're non-Jews, bringing their possessions, their treasure chests, to a, Gentile, or to a Jewish king, to a Jewish messiah, which many have suggested um, uh, anticipates this idea that the Gentiles are now being included in God's promise to Israel. They're fulfilling this, this great prophetic tradition of the, the Gentiles streaming to Israel. So what's the significance of the Magi? This is from da Vinci's adoration of the Magi. One, uh, they are these king predictors, as I've said. And in the narrative, they represent this contrast that we're going to see elsewhere in Matthew's gospel between outsiders and insiders. The insiders, the Jerusalem establishment, the Jerusalem elite, resist the birth of the Messiah. They are upset about it. They are confronted by it. The outsiders, the Magi, worship and, and bring gifts. Uh, there's a significant difference in response, and we're going to see that in the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. There's possible connections with Numbers 22 through 24, which for early Christians became sort of a hotbed for thinking about Jesus as the Messiah. Um, the Magi were seen as successors of Balaam, this non-Israelite who comes and blesses the Israelites and their future king. Um, also, as I mentioned earlier, the star is seen as a sign of the Messiah. Um, uh, and so the star in the sky that the, that the Magi see is, is interpreted as a sign of the Messiah. And then, as I, as I pointed out, this idea that um, this journey of the Magi is, is symbolic of a larger journey which is the people who were not included in God's covenant with Israel are journeying to Israel to be included in it and are going to bring their wealth um, and, and their possessions with them. So I wanted to um, play this, and, and this will probably take us to our time. This is uh, the T.S. Eliot uh, poem on the Magi, and I think it is an appropriate uh, reflection on the significance. Oops. Let's see. 